The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. China announced a major nationwide easing of its zero COVID policy a week after protests against the controls spread across the country. People with mild COVID will no longer be forced into centralized quarantine facilities. They can recover at home instead. Time magazine has named its person of the year, calling this year's choice the most clear cut in memory. It's Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky saying he galvanized the world in a way we haven't seen in decades. Explosions have reportedly hit a Russian airbase far from the Ukrainian border, damaging two long range bombers. Unverified video of the blasts have been posted on a variety of Telegram channels. The blasts early on Monday struck the airbase near the city of Engels, more than 600 kilometers inside of Russian territory. The bombers damaged are said to be of the same type used to carry out airstrikes on Ukraine's infrastructure. Hailing what he called a new era in ties with the Arab world, Chinese President Xi Jinping signed a series of strategic deals with Saudi Arabia on Thursday. The leader from China, the world's biggest energy consumer, received a lavish welcome from the oil-rich nation. Xi's car was escorted to the king's palace by members of the Saudi Royal Guard riding Arabian horses and carrying Chinese and Saudi flags. The world is deglobalizing. The world is breaking apart again into two camps, the autocratic countries and the democratic countries. And the Middle East, as a major energy producer, and OPEC Plus is in the autocratic camp. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. All three major indexes ended the week with losses as disappointing news keeps coming in on the inflation front. Producer prices came in hotter than expected, rising 7.4% from a year earlier. Inflation is remaining stubbornly persistent, which is not good news for the markets, because it will keep the Fed raising interest rates much higher than the markets could be thinking of, forcing the Fed to keep raising rates, possibly pushing the economy into a recession. The question now is, will the approaching recession be mild or a hard landing? The market keeps ignoring Chairman Powell's comments, thinking he's bluffing. But the chairman has said, if need be, he will keep raising rates, even if it means pushing the economy over into a recession. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Poplavin. Welcome to a special edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. John Roke joins me at the top of the hour. John thinks there's more trouble ahead for the financial markets with inflation remaining stubbornly high. John is very bullish on silver, which broke out on Friday with the possibility of a short squeeze ahead. He likes inflation stocks such as commodities with the possibility of a bond rally as the economy heads into a recession next year. Dan Steffens will join me later on in the first hour as we discuss why oil prices could be heading higher next year despite the recent weakness. In the second hour, Jim Bianco from Bianco Research joins me for a special hour interview as we discuss the approaching recession. Will it be hard or a soft landing? We'll also discuss the Fed's next moves and why inflation is likely to persist and last throughout this entire decade, as there are four key drivers of inflation 
that will keep inflation elevated for a much longer time than the market's expecting. Finally, we'll get into what to do as well as investments given the macro environment. But first, let's find out what moved the markets this week with Ryan Paplava. Ryan? Well, it's been an interesting week to see the reaction by investors since Fed Chair Powell's economic speech last week. That saw the Nasdaq rise 4.5% almost in a day and post a jobs report just last Friday. The jobs report was higher than expected, as we talked about last week. The results of that reading suggests that the Fed will continue to raise rates and keep them higher for longer, as officials have been saying. This Monday kicked off with the Wall Street Journal article from Nick Tameros that suggested wage inflation could compel the Fed in 2023 to take the benchmark rate higher than the 5% the market current expects. And I think this was a reaction to how favorably investors reacted to Powell's comments last week about moderating the rate. Tameros essentially was saying slowing the pace of hikes is not a Fed pivot, inferring here because the Fed will likely keep raising. Investors inferred further that the Fed will likely keep raising, thus creating the economic weakness it is looking for. Another negative catalyst supporting this narrative this week were comments from CEOs of J.P. Morgan, Chase, Walmart, and Union Pacific, making cautious-sounding remarks. On the same day, the Wall Street Journal reported PepsiCo plans to lay off hundreds at its North America Snacks and Beverage Division headquarters, and Morgan Stanley is cutting 2% of its staff. These two outside of the tech sector announcements we have seen thus far are worrying investors that earnings estimates may be too high for this environment. While long-term interest rates have come down in the past month, uh, past couple of months, the yield curve inversion has steepened at around 77 basis points currently. The last time we saw an inverted yield curve this steep was back in the early 1980s and was previously linked to previous recessions since as a precursor. As the yields going up hurt growth stocks, they haven't returned in performance as they've come down. That's because investors may be considering the reasons why rates are falling may be driven by falling rates of inflation. However, the belief is that weaker growth is what's causing that inflation to back off. Friday, the producer price index for November was hotter than expected at 7.4% for total PPI and 6.2% for the core. While these levels were down from October, they came in higher than expected, which led to some weakness in stocks Friday. Next Tuesday, we get the consumer price index, and then Wednesday, the Fed will announce its updated monetary policy and could potentially signal a decrease in its rate hike cycle from the previous hike of 75 basis points to 50 basis points, where the thinking is right now, investors will be listening closely to anything Powell might communicate about the glide path going forward. Despite the doom and gloom seen here for this week, there are some rays of hope. The Chinese continue to discuss the relaxation of travel restrictions. There is hope that increased Chinese demand will help the global markets and that has been badly needed as the most recent November trades report for China was somber, with a larger than expected decline in China's exports of 8.7% year-over-year and imports being down 10.6% year-over-year. While China isn't moving its rates higher, they've done enough to their economy with their zero-COVID policies to hurt things. Other banks are raising rates, however, like the Reserve Bank of India by 35 basis points, to six and a quarter percent, 
and the Bank of Canada this week up 50 basis points to four and a quarter percent. West Texas crude oil hit a new low this week for the year to close near $71 a barrel. OPEC agreed to maintain its production cut target of 2 million barrels per day until the end of 2023, while the EU set the price for Russian oil at $60 a barrel. But going back to the growth concerns, that may explain why oil and oil stocks have been under pressure as of late on global economic growth concerns. We have yet to see the positive views on China adjust anything here. So to sum up the week, higher for longer may end up pushing the U.S. in recession when it comes to rates. And there are some concerns over earnings estimates going into 2023's numbers. Potentially, maybe they're too high. December hasn't started off well with five straight losses, a deeply inverted yield curve, and questions are building whether 2023's earnings estimates, again, reflect the current state of concern. Up ahead next week is the Consumer Price Index on Tuesday and the Federal Reserve's last policy decision of the year, with optics suggesting they slow the pace of rate hikes from 75 basis points to 50. But again, the big question will be, where's the glide path? Up next, Financial Sense would like to welcome our guest technician for this week, John Roke. There are many reasons why you would want to essentially move from being in Asia to either domestic market, to Eastern Europe, to the US, or even to places like Mexico. And these can be geographically oriented decision-making processes. This can be because of infrastructure. It can be because of labor, as you referred to. Demographics play a role. Fiscal policy plays a role. But what surprises me, and this is what I saw on my recent trip, and having spoken to a number of customers in the region, Mexico has advantages in all of those different rungs and points. So they're in a very prized position, I think, over the next five or six years to see significant growth from nearshoring. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. If you're seeking financial advice and how to invest in today's markets, Financial Sense Wealth Management can help. From setting up or providing advice on 401k plans, managing corporate cash balances in a zero interest rate environment, to helping individuals, foundations, and businesses achieve their financial goals, give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today at 888-486-3939. Let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, here we are on the Thursday. The markets are having a little bit of a struggle this week. Does the rally continue to the end of the year? Well, let's find out. Joining us on the program is John Roke. And John, I want to begin the larger picture. We've been in a sort of an upswing from October. Do you see this upswing continuing to the end of the year or do we go for a stall here? So I think that we're in a stall period. I don't think that this rally is that dissimilar from the rallies you know, that occurred earlier this year. We had one in January. We had another one from late February, early March into what was the beginning of April. And then we had one in May and then there was June into August. And now we've had one from October into late November, early December. It's not altogether dissimilar. This one got to its downward sloping 200 day, pierced it a little bit but was kind of, you know, had its shot blocked. 
like uh, Hakeem Olajuwon used to do to so many guys who tried to get in the lane on him when he played for the Rockets. And you got overboard on a daily basis using a, a regular canned MACD, and that has rolled. So I think we're in a stall session here. Uh, I do like the fact that on this last rally, the market was driven by non-growth. Basics, industrials, and financials led the rally. So I think that's an encouraging sign. But I don't believe the bear market's over. And, you know, I, I'm just looking at, John, some of the earnings reports. If you look at the S&P back out energy, it doesn't look all that spectacular. And a lot of companies have been hinting at or talking about in their earnings releases about higher costs. And what happens in the fourth quarter when those earnings come out in January and February and they don't look as robust? Yeah, I think for the most part, Jim, the, the investors that I speak with have you know, kind of uh, implied that they are trying to look through that period. I, I'm not going to dismiss what they say or embrace it. I'm just giving you what, what I hear. They're trying to look through this period and anticipate that the Fed will, you know, use uh, to use the current phrase that's in vogue, pivot or cut rates. So I think they're trying to look through it. However, I've done the the historical work going back to the um, to the 80s and the 70s, even when the Fed has cut rates after a rate rising cycle. It has just meant that they are assured that a recession will follow. The market doesn't embrace such action. So I'm a little bit curious that people are trying to look through what might be weak earnings because they think the Fed's actions will um, will come to save the day like Mighty Mouse used to. Yeah, and there's two arguments in terms of this possible recession. You have the Jamie Dimon, JP Morgan that says a hard landing, a tough big R recession. And then you got Bank of America coming out. Nah, it's going to be a mild recession, a little R. So there's two debates on Wall Street itself. I'm fond of the old saw that the definition of a recession is when your neighbor loses his job and the definition of a depression is when you lose your job. So I think it's a little bit cavalier of folks on Wall Street to talk about mild recessions. Uh, I'm certain that it wouldn't be mild if it had happened to them. So I think we're a little bit too complacent about that. I'm not certain that one will happen or one will not happen. But stocks have been telling us that something is awry or amiss for some time. So I think it's appropriate to kind of pay attention. And I think we've been through the fastest rate rising cycle in history. That's got to ca cause or be followed by some sort of uh, economic distress. So I, I want to be wary about that, too. Now, let's let's talk about uh, there was a period of time when uh, these recessionary thoughts were coming out. Typically, when that happens, you see the yield curve invert, which is a predictor, good predictor of recessions. And then uh, you have long-term rates coming down. There for a while, that wasn't happening. We're seeing rates come down now. What's your take on interest rates here? I, I think we've seen a peak here uh, in rates near term. I'll tell you, however, Jim, that I'm reluctant to think that it is a big longer term or more important peak, because I really think if you go back to the uh, early 80s and and, and you kind of look at every rate rising cycle prior to this one, this one was most unique, the most um, powerful. And I think it's going to be hard for um, rates to come in as they did in prior cycles where they went, you know, made new lows each time a prior rate rising cycle had ended. I think rates are going to stay, let's say, sticky higher than most believe. And I think inflation is going to stay sticky higher than most believe. And I think that's going to continue to cause difficulty for stocks. And uh, I, I prefer to be associated with, you know, things that might be inflationary beneficiaries rather than items that are, uh, 
you know, high price PE or price to sales that are likely to be harmed by uh, a sticky higher inflation and sticky higher rates. And speaking of inflationary assets, let's move over to the commodity side, which is a big beneficiary. We're seeing lowest inventories that I've seen in quite a while. I don't care if you're looking at copper, if you're looking at energy, and even looking at silver flying out of the COMEX warehouses. You wrote a piece on silver. Let's talk about that in a chart you sent. So I introduced this silver theme, let's say two months or so ago, and I took a look at silver relative to oil. And I did it only because my momentum work was starting to improve for silver and it was really starting to weaken for oil. And then I visited the UK at the end of uh, October, early November, and I had 15 uh, meetings over what was, you know, two condensed days. And I found that most of the people, if not all of them that I spoke with, were long oil for the exact same reasons. The reasons were that China will open up and the U.S. will have to restock the strategic petroleum reserve. And so I just asked the question to, of each of the people I spoke with, and I said, but everybody's long oil for the exact same reasons. If those were the reasons and they're real, why isn't oil on the moon right now? I asked the same sort of questions about a year ago about semiconductor stocks when I was told that there were great um, shortages of semis. And so I asked then, if that's true, how come the semiconductor stocks aren't on the moon? And, and we know what happened to semis thereafter. I'm not telling you that uh, that's going to happen here to oil, but my suggestion was everybody can't be long the same item for the exact same reasons. That's usually not the way it works in our business. And so I thought about selling oil and silver was improving. So I wanted to show silver relative to oil. And then I extended it by uh, using, let's say, precious metals and industrial metals relative to oil. In short, I think you want to own silver relative to oil if somebody can do it in that fashion. And if they can't do it, I, I, I think that the... Um, the energy is going to be kind of in a difficult position in 2023. If you look at the commodity breakdowns, the commodity sector breakdowns, um, they're really kind of three sectors. There are metals, there's energy, and there's ags. And uh, metals and ags perform very poorly throughout uh, 2022. Only now do you see kind of the metals picking up here late in the year. And while most of the year, uh, the energy sector did very well. And I think in 2023, we might see something of the opposite, where you might have metals and ags doing better and energy doing less well or poorer, of course, than it did in 2022. I don't know that it's over for oil. Um, I, I, I think it's probably not. But I think we're going to be in a period where oil's not going to perform as well. And people are going to be kind of a little bit uh, distressed or dismayed that they stuck with those stocks for a longer period of time than they perhaps wanted to. And, and I had actually thought about shorting oil going back to July. I said that I would rather be short the commodity relative to the stocks. Um, and then it's only of late that the stocks really started to come in in earnest. But um, silver looks good relative to oil. Pre uh, precious metals look good relative to oil. Industrial metals look good relative to oil. And on an absolute basis, Silver's picking up quite nicely. I actually think the top of the range for silver going back to kind of mid 2020 is at 30 bucks. And I think that number is in play for silver. And silver has improved relative to a basket of commodities. And its momentum into, uh, stuff, uh, momentum work that I take a look at has also improved. So I think there's something to do here on the long side with silver. And speaking of commodities, silver and the precious metals, let's talk about the US dollar. It's one of the sharpest declines I've seen recently. What's your take on where the dollar goes from here? 
Okay, when the dollar broke out early in the year, my uh, my target for the dollar was 120. Uh, it got to 115 at late September, and then momentum started to come out of my work pretty rapidly. And just like you said, Jim, it's had a big sharp decline. I really do think that um, I want to sell the dollar here, uh, and I think uh, I prefer uh, yen to dollar. I prefer Thai baht to dollar. I prefer. Korean won to dollar. I prefer Singapore dollar to dollar. And with the dollar weakening, it kind of makes me feel a little bit better about it, my idea about precious and industrial metals and perhaps commodities. Um, so I think the dollar is likely to be a sale on any bounce. Um, and it's been pretty weak, to your point. The DXY, um, just from, let's call it November 10th through now, which is not a long period of time and currencies don't move like equities, you know, the DXY is in pretty sharply from that time till now. I think it's in probably, you know, not quite 6% or so, but that's a sharp move for the DXY over 20 days. And the inability of it to bounce so far suggests to me that uh, kind of the characteristics of the strength of the dollar are certainly changing. So if we look at this, you know, the Fed is fighting inflation. Uh, we've got fiscal policy, which is highly inflationary. But if the dollar starts to come down, I just saw the trade deficit went up and the U.S. imports a lot of goods. So if the dollar weakens, what does that do to the inflation picture? I, I'm going to say that I think the inflation picture stays, uh, again, sticky high. I think, and I said this for a long time, uh, that the Fed really had a tremendous mistake with respect to this transitory notion. I thought that was perhaps one of the more foolish things I'd ever heard come out of the uh, central bank. And I thought that they were saying that because certainly they don't they don't pump their own gas and they likely don't go uh, do, doing their own grocery shopping. And I've often thought that professional economists try to, you know, not see their own spending in the items that they're looking at or the indicators. And I thought that was easy to figure out that it was going to be wrong. Um, but I think that it's much too easy uh, to believe that the Fed who got it really wrong will all of a sudden get it really right and get inflation back down to 2%. I mean, let's think about it. Inflation was running under 2%, and they had the hubris to think that they should be able to get it above 2%, as if people weren't enjoying a uh, a nice uh, way of life with CPI under 2%. So they really pushed everything to the wall, pushed all their shape. Uh, chips in the middle of the table to make a big bet to get the inflation rate from just under 2% to over 2%. I, I think that nobody would have made that bet in a casino with uh, with with the sort of leverage or aggressiveness that they did it. And they did it and they, you know, they really um, had to eat crow because of it. And because I think they made a big mistake on the upside, I don't think they're going to have an easy time getting it down. In fact, the first time that inflation moved above let's say 5%, uh, going back to the early 50s, it took more than a year for it to get back below 2%. And then the second time it really did it was, was from the late 60s all the way through the early 80s. I mean, the Fed had a real devil of a time. It took them 10 years to get the inflation genie back in the bottle. So I think there's a lot of hubris here to think that they can get it right quickly. Um, certainly, rates of inflation moderate because they can't accelerate continuously. They have to decelerate as they are um, after a peak, but that doesn't mean they have to go back to below 2%. So 
so that they can get their average figure at 2%. I think that's a little bit hubristic. I want to go to another piece that you wrote recently, How the Swiss Stole Christmas. Give our listeners the gist of what you're telling in that article. Okay, thanks. Uh, thanks, Jim. So, of course, I, I did it based on how the Grinch stole Christmas. And my idea about this was that the Swiss said that they were going to have to curtail electricity usage and perhaps shut off Christmas lights because of the demand via electric vehicles, which they have promoted to a great degree uh, as people move from combustion engines to electric. So I thought it was kind of ridiculous that they set up the whole situation where they are now going to punish the Swiss for following the suggestions of the government. It was kind of a, you know, damned if I am if I do and damned if I don't do it. Um, they were going to probably punish me if I stayed with my combustion engine by making it untenable for me to own a, uh, a gasoline-powered car. And then I went to the electric, and now they're telling me I can't have Christmas lights because we don't have enough electricity. I mean, who gets us into these situations, Jim? It's truly amazing. Yeah, it's just so many, well, my own state of California, John, you remember during this summer, California was going through brownouts and we're trying to exit gasoline engines. But then the governor came out and said, if you have an EV, please don't charge it from nine to nine. Batteries only store power. They don't produce power. You have to produce it in some other way. Uh, We could do this all day long. Yeah. I want to go to something else that to me is a harbinger about the economy, and that's the chart of Amazon. In fact, I had one of my clients today call, and he goes, hey, Amazon is really looking cheap. Should we buy it here? And I I mentioned uh, what you said. I said, it's about to get cheaper. That tells me a lot about the economy, John. Uh, So I I have heard... um you know, much of the same thing that, that you just referenced with respect to the, uh, to the person that you spoke with, you know, where people will say that Amazon is in a lot. You know, of course, the stock peaked going back to mid-21, somewhere around 190 or thereabouts, and then kind of made a late rush at that number in, in late 2021 to get back there. But um, it looks like it's actually going to get cheaper. My downside target initially pre-split was 2,000, which post-split equated to 100. The stock got there. And then my second downside target has been 75. Um, Not only is Amazon weak on an absolute basis, but it is really poor relative to the S&P 500. And I think even if Amazon is the greatest company in the entire world, we should probably not forget that the stock got actually 275 and then actually it got to 65 in late 2018. So to think that it could get back to that level isn't really a heroic call at all. It just says, well, gee whiz, it had traded here before. I don't see why it can't get there. And this decline is much worse than the one we saw for the stock that went down 25% from 100 to 75 uh, in late 2018. So I think it can get there. And that's my number. But I think it's still too early to buy this. And I do think it gets cheaper. Yeah. And and the other thing is, you know, you had Jeff Bezos coming out and saying, you know, they laid off 13,000 employees and saying it's time to hunker down. Uh, I've also read stories in the Wall Street Journal talking about clients or uh, basically shoppers doing more online shopping because, you know, the various tragedies we've seen shootings at Walmart and other yeah. stores that they're going to shop online. So if the guy that has the number one online retail store in the world is telling us hunker down and laying off employees. What does that say? I think it means that we should probably take what he's saying and and see if the chart agrees. And the chart does agree. So it tells us we should probably 
you know, not be so impetuous or rash to uh, uh, to try to be a hero and try to pick the low in this. But let's let it form if it's going to form. So, John, given where we are right now, heading into the end of the year and possibilities, what might unfold in the first quarter as an investor, what would you be doing here? I mean, we, we talked about silver looking attractive, some of the metals looking attractive, the ags looking attractive because they've been underperforming in the commodity space. What would you be doing? I'm going to say that I would and I have decided to take no big swings here. I've decided not to commit a lot of money. I've decided to be extra cautious. I think the dollar weakens. I think um, bonds are a pretty good uh, buy. I mean, you could buy the 12-month Treasury note at about, it pays you 4.6% or thereabouts. I mean, that's pretty darn good. 4.6% uh, for 12 months is pretty darn good. And I think if um, if some stocks or sectors you know start to improve, you don't have to be there particularly aggressively. I do think it is important to consider, however, that the stocks that drove us to you know great excesses are not the stocks that we should be looking for when this bear market is over. It's my experience that when bear markets end, the stocks or groups that lead us out of that of the bear market low are never the stocks that drove us to the bull, prior bull market highs. So I would expect that a change of leadership will arise. And I think as investors, we have to keep our eyes open for that. Somebody once said, get ready for FANG 2.0. And he wasn't talking about Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. He was talking about fuel, agriculture, nuclear, and gold. That's such a good line. I, I, I wish I had thought of it myself. I have liked the what I call non-growth since momentum for growth to non-growth peaked in the spring of 2020. Uh, I, I like I like metals. I like the commodity space. I like natural resources. Um, I think that that's likely to be the sector or sectors of the market that lead as, um, as, as we come out of this. I think we have to have an open mind and recognize that the last time we had inflation this high, those were the sectors that were, were winners. So I, I like his approach to the new FANG. Um, and um, again, it's such a good line. I wish I had come up with that acronym myself. I, I, I think he's right. I, I'm waiting for nuclear to really um, you know, show up. Unfortunately, there's just not enough market cap in the whole nuclear space to make anybody particularly happy. Uh, maybe if the U.S. decides to abandon some of their ill-fated kind of energy policies here and move directly from what is causing a lot of pain to what would cause less pain on the nuclear front, then perhaps we'll have some uh, greater investment in capital spending there so that we can make everybody's lives a little easier. And a final question, if I may, your thoughts on precious metals. We talked about silver is looking good. What about gold? Um, gold is behind silver here. Uh, I do know, Jim, that uh, if you have a gold bull market, you have a bigger silver bull market. And I do think that it is not likely to have a big commodity advance unless gold is a participant. Gold had a big rally into the summer of 2020 and then came in, corrected, and then tried to go again into early 2022. And to be honest, uh, I, I got jammed on it right there. I, I thought I had it right from the very early part of 2022 and thought that it would make a new all-time high. Um, it got really close and then gave it up very quickly. So I'm chastened, um, but I'm glad to see that gold is improving. And as long as gold does a little bit better, then I'm willing to believe that we might actually have a legit commodity cycle to work with. 
Well, super. Well, John, as we close, if our listeners would like to follow the great work that you guys do, how could they do so? Uh, so I, I'm with 22V Research. You can certainly uh, contact, um, you know, uh, it's, it's an institutional only firm, I, I, I'd like to say. Uh, so if you're a part of any uh, institution or RIA or family office, please uh, don't hesitate to contact us. You could find our information on the 22V website. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak with you and to say that. All right. Well, listen, John, you have a Merry Christmas and a prosperous new year. And I look forward to talking to you again next year. Jim, the same to you. Thanks. Always a pleasure to be with you. When we outlined the book, you know, chapter one is that how the supply chain is breaking down. Chapter two says why. Why is the supply chain breaking down? When did it start? What started it said? And we talked a little bit about that. Chapter three looks into the future and says it's gone. It will come back, but in a new form. And what will that new form look like? But then chapter four is on inflation. And yeah, there's no doubt about the inflation. It's in front of us. I put gas in my car. I go to the store. We all see it. But what people really don't see coming, and this may happen a lot sooner than people expect, once we get through this inflation episode, we may be in for serious disinflation and deflation. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and hit where it says contact us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, if there's any good news for consumers besides the fact that the Fed may be slowing down and retailers are discounting merchandise, the price of oil has been falling. So gasoline is getting cheaper and maybe we'll get lucky and so will natural gas. But we'll remain that way. Let's find out. Joining us on the program is Dan Steffens from Energy Perspectives. Dan, I'm looking on my Bloomberg screen. I've got U.S. commercial stocks falling below five-year averages, crude oil stocks at Cushing falling below five-year averages, U.S. gasoline stocks have now started to tick up a little bit, but the driving season's over, U.S. distillates, which is diesel and heating oil, far below five-year averages. So we've seen natural gas pull back, we've seen oil pull back into the low 70s, and the theory is with the Fed raising interest rates, we're going to go into a recession. The world's going to go into a recession. We're going to need less oil. Why don't you pick it up from there? Yeah, thanks. A lot to chew on. I mean, actually, the financial data that came out, or the economic data for the U.S. was very positive, but the market sees that as a negative because that tells the market that the Fed's going to keep raising interest rates. And they believe the Fed is determined to push the country into a recession to get inflation under control. And they don't know, you know, what's that going to do for oil demand? I think the global situation is the physical market is very tight, as you said, by, you know, going over those inventories, you know, it's really tight. And here we are heading into the winter and we're short on home heating oil. 
And I think we're going to have uh, heating oil rationing in the Northeast as soon as we get our first real winter cold wave. So the fundamentals point to higher prices, but then you got all this noise. And I would say number one at the top of that list is fear of recession, keeping the pressure on it. And then, you know, you have this stuff going on in Europe with the G7 putting this oil price cap on Russian oil. That's another thing that's, you know, a total unknown what that's really going to do. And so those kind of things to keep the oil traders on the sidelines, I think. Well, Dan, from what I'm reading with these Russian caps, the Russians are saying anybody that complies with that, we're not going to sell you oil. I mean, yeah, no, but the price actually at $60. They've been selling oil cheaper than that anyway. And I think that's one thing is putting pressure on the price of WTI. I think the cap price would have been lower. It might have caused the actual oil price to go up because the theory, it'd be actually taking more physical supply off the market. But a part of that caps is they're not going to allow anybody to get insurance. Like the tankers can't get insurance and stuff like that. And I guess they're threatening to put sanctions on any countries that violate it. But I think it's going to be very tough for them to, you know, really have any teeth in any kind of enforcement. I mean, I don't think China, I think China could care less about this. They're going to buy all the Russian oil they can at cheap prices. India is probably going to do the same thing. I think Turkey's taking advantage of the situation and buying a cheap Russian oil. And, you know, it's kind of like I don't blame them, but anyway. Well, you know, if you look at the best performing sector this year, the S&P XLE is up about 55% for the year. And we've got the oil stocks pulling back. But I'm looking, Dan, at some of the yields. I mean, I don't care if you're looking at British Petroleum, you're looking at 4, 5, 6% dividend yields, PE multiples of uh, 4 and 5 on some of these stocks. So you can certainly say they're not overpriced. They may be overbought, but they're not overpriced. So one of the things that we've seen, and I'd like to get your take on this, you know, OPEC said that they were going to cut production by 2 million barrels, but they're falling short of production by over 3 million barrels. So was it really a production cut? It really was because Saudi Arabia is going to take some of their oil off the market. So the individual company quotas, some of the countries that were meeting their quotas are had lower quotas now. So it physically takes about a million barrels off the market. But you know, that takes a while. I mean, that takes like three months because from the time oil is sold and, you know, comes out of the ground is put in a tanker, it, you know, it's got to be shipped across the oceans. And, you know, before it really starts impacting physical supply, like in Europe or in the United States refineries, it takes a while. So a lot of this stuff, I think, going to come to a head in the first quarter. And then also, if China backs off on their COVID zero policy and starts, you know, allowing more people to get out of their apartments and homes and stuff, I think that's going to increase oil demand too. We'll see. And then, you know, if you get into the first quarter and we get some real serious winter weather in the Northeast, that's going to increase home heating oil demands considerably. So, what about, you know, I think part of the confusion in the market, if you look at the IEA a couple of years ago, they were saying we need to, demand for oil is peaked and we need to spend more money on renewables. Then we get into this energy crunch and they're saying we need to invest more money in the oil business. You know, we're shutting down drilling here, not giving out permits, but then we're allowing Chevron to go drill in Venezuela. I mean, none of this stuff makes sense. (laughs) It really doesn't make any sense. I'll throw this in here. Yesterday, went to an Australian-American kind of a chamber of commerce thing between the two countries, but it's very sophisticated conference. And I mean, they had people from NASA. They had, you know, people from Rice University, their PhDs and all this stuff. And one of the panels was they were talking about the energy transition. And the thing that struck me in this hour long panel discussion, there was no talk 
about wind and solar. It's pretty clear that wind and solar is not going to work. It's not going to do anything. We've spent $1 trillion on wind and solar, and it's picked up 1% of the global energy. And in fact, demand for oil and gas has actually increased because total energy demand has increased. So the thing they're now talking about is going full speed into carbon capture and trying to, you know, come up with ways to pump more carbon into the ground, you know, capture it from power plants or capture it from factories and pump it into the ground. And then also there was talk about hydrogen becoming more of a part of the energy picture, but that's years away. That's not like in the next couple of years, that's multiple years away, I think, to make a dent. But that really impressed me at this conference because usually they throw wind and solar out like that's the solution to everything. Well, you know, it's not just that demand did not peak. It actually has been going up each year. Going up, yeah. Yeah. And if you read, I just recently read the OPEC report where they're talking about increasing demand each year. I think I forget what it's going to increase next year. It's a million something barrels. 1.6 million next year and 2.2 million the year after. That's their IEA and OPEC kind of Yeah, and then the projections. What really got me is the OPEC is saying by 2027, their production begins falling, which probably is reflecting, you know, depletion. So if I'm reading this, if you're reading this, what are traders reading? Yeah. What, where is that going to come from? And in that same IEA, they put out a monthly report called the World Oil Report or something every month. Then they're changing and they're tweaking it a little bit, but they're saying recession or no recession. What they're looking at mainly for next year is they believe China has got to get away from this COVID zero policy. The country cannot run with millions and millions of people locked up in their apartments. So that's got to end. And they think, you know, Europe will make it. Europe will make it through the winter somehow. And then their demand there is going to go through the roof just to rebuild what they have in storage. I read a report that was put out by the OECD countries, the European countries, that said, okay, it's going to be difficult to make it through this winter, but they don't know how they're going to rebuild their supply for the next winter. They're already worried about that. And anyway, you know, we're seeing all this, but you know, demand for energy is just going up, up, up with global population growth. We're now over 8 billion people and uh, our standard of living depends on a steady supply of energy. And most of it, 80 to 85% of it's going to continue to come from oil, gas, and coal for many decades, I believe. Well, it's just like 84% of our transportation depends on fossil fuels. And the other thing, as you mentioned, wind and solar is not going to do it. Not going to do it. Not going to work. But also electric cars aren't going to do it. You take a Tesla, it works fine in the weather we have in California. Put it in six feet of snow in Michigan, it doesn't work that well. Yeah, I was at a luncheon today and two guys making the presentation had flown down from Calgary. And I don't know if you've been watching the weather, but they're getting hit with this big polar vortex and they have sub-zero Fahrenheit, sub-zero Fahrenheit temperatures now across the whole area. And the one guy has a Tesla and he said its range is only like 35 miles because when he's got to run the heater and everything and the batteries don't work as good in cold weather and it's almost like a useless vehicle. When it gets this cold. And I noticed one of the things coming out of Europe is Switzerland says that they have a like a four-step process about what they're going to do to handle the cold weather. And the one is when their power demand gets high, they're going to ban the recharging of EVs. Hmm. That's step three in their plan. And so who's going to buy all these EVs if we can't 
recharge them if they're an unreliable vehicle. And people don't understand how much has to be built into the power grid to do all that. Another thing I saw from Europe was Norway has the highest percentage of any country of new vehicle sales being EVs. It's like up to 70% and it has not had any impact on their oil demand at all. Their oil demand has just been flat. You know, it's amazing because you mentioned not being able to charge EVs. We went through heat waves and during the summer in California and the governor asked people that if you have an EV, don't charge it between three and eight because we don't have electricity. So, and yet they're going full bore in the year 2030, they will shut down Diablo Canyon our last nuclear power plant, they shut down the first one. But Dan, they're not building any new ones. And they're also passing a law that the utilities are going to be forced to shut down their coal and that gas plants to meet their carbon emission goals set forth in our green laws here. Well, that came up at that panel discussion yesterday too, about why is nuclear not part of this energy transition? And literally everybody on the panel, there's four very smart people on the panel, and they said, it's purely political. No politician, congressman, senator is going to propose and back nuclear power plants for their constituents because they've built this fear into the population that no one wants to live close to a nuclear power plant. And so it's just politically unacceptable, even though that is the answer to carbon emissions. Yeah, it's just, I call these guys the banana greens because build absolutely nothing anytime near anybody. That's pretty much where the movement's gone. I mean, we're going to shut down our nuclear plants. We're going to shut down coal. We're going to shut down natural gas. And then we want you to get an EV. And where's the electricity going to come for that? And as we mentioned, it doesn't work well in cold weather. Wind, it doesn't always blow wind around the world. There's places where wind and solar just absolutely will not work. So I'm glad that at least at some levels, they're starting to see that Wind and solar is not going to do it. Yeah, it's just not going to work. It's going to disappoint. There's not enough materials to make it. They're not good for the environment. I mean, you don't want these big wind farms killing all the birds. And, you know, there's just not enough material to make all this stuff. Actually, solar probably makes more sense in some places like, you know, Arizona. That kind of makes more sense. But I've never thought windmills were the solution to this problem. And we just don't have the materials to do it. And that's the same thing for EVs. We don't have the metals the materials for the batteries, all the copper we're going to need. It's just not there. And really, I think I'm so glad they're starting to look at other things. Like to me, carbon capture, it can be done. We have massive amounts of depleted sandstones in West Texas that you could just pump tons and tons of carbon dioxide into those fields. They're actually producing CO2 in Northern New Mexico, and they're pumping it down to the Permian Basin and putting the ground. Well, that's taking CO2 out of the ground to put back in the ground, but wouldn't it be smarter to take the CO2 out of the air or out of the end of a power plant instead of pumping it into the atmosphere, pump it down into the ground? And actually, you can pump it into old oil fields, and it actually helps you recover more oil that we're going to need from those fields. You know, the thing that really struck me about this is when we take a look at this demand for oil, it's going to be there. It's going up. And I always remark on the IEA is always revising their demand estimates up. They always underestimate it. And if we look at what we have right now, how are you going to get goods to the store without gasoline or diesel fuel? It's not going to happen. How are farmers going to grow crops? I mean, I live in California, Dan, and I can get any kind of fruit. I don't care if it's berries or what. If we don't grow it in season here, it's in season someplace in South Somewhere America. Else, yeah. yeah, and they're yeah, flying it's it amazing. in. It's amazing. 
Yeah. So I want to get into the investment side because Wall Street with ESG has been avoiding these stocks. And I'm thinking, you know what? What incentive are these companies going to have to drill if you're going to say, I'm going to penalize you, I'm going to slap a windfall profits tax. Our governor wants to tax the oil companies. He's blaming them for the oil crisis at his own policies. You know, if you own an oil stock, stick with it because you're going to make a lot of money this decade. You're going to make a lot of money. And I will tell you, we discussed this at lunch today, that these companies are in so much better shape than they were two years ago. They have paid off billions and billions of debt. This little company today, I've followed them for years. I thought they were going to go bankrupt two years ago. They survived. They are now in the better shape than this team. And they've built and sold a couple other public companies. And now this is their third one. And they said, this is the best financial shape they've ever been in. Their debt is almost totally paid off. And they've started to pay dividends. They're building up a big cash pile of cash that they're going to be able to buy stuff with. They got a ton of running room and some really low cost, uh, high potential wells, even at this price. And another thing to remember, okay, oil's down to you know mid-70s now, and gas is at 550, natural gas is at 550. OPEC Plus is in charge of the oil price. That The cartel countries, if they decide they want 100-hour oil, they just have to announce they're going to cut production another couple million barrels, and that'll take care of it. And the other thing, I think they're letting it go low a little bit for a while because they don't want to be blamed for forcing the world into recession. So they'll let it go low for a while, but they're going to keep the oil price where it needs to be. And it's $75. These companies are doing well. Their break-even prices are like $40 a barrel oil. You know, these are companies, they survived the pandemic. They survived oil in the teens for a while and then came back strong. So they're in really good shape. And you mentioned yield. We have a high yield income portfolio with 13 or 14 companies in it. It's averaging like nine and a half to 10% dividend yield. A few of them are paying like 12% dividend yield. And they're companies with very strong balance sheets. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the companies. So there, this is a great time to really add some of these high yield and high growth. And they're not done growing. They have got growth to go with it. Yeah, I'm just looking at some of the estimates that these companies are. And you know, it's amazing. The vast majority of analysts on Wall Street are still negative on oil, despite the earnings. They're saying, buy tech, buy tech, buy tech. You know, they're still in that kind of fang mode. We had a guest on our show recently. He said, get ready for fang 2.0. And he wasn't talking about Facebook, Apple. Google or Amazon, he was talking about fuel, agriculture, nuclear, and gold. So that's his 2.0. Yeah. I think we've got the makings of a commodity super cycle. I really do. I think there's just so much noise in the media today with all this, you know, COVID stuff in China and recession, blah, 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 blah. You know, what's the Fed going to do next? What's the administration going to do? How long can they keep pulling? oil out of the strategic petroleum reserve. And, you know, when this stuff's going to work itself out and probably not in a very long time period. And then I think we're going to see a steady increase in oil gas and the natural gas is purely going to be controlled by the weather in the United States. So uh, we're just one or two cold waves away from getting back over six. And at $5, these natural gas producers are doing just fine at $5. Well, in the oil companies are doing well at even $74 oil. I'm just looking at Exxon's estimates this year. They'll go from five and a quarter in terms of profit earnings per share to $14. And next year, with they're estimating the price of oil down, 
they're going to make $11, which is still over a hundred and something percent over what they made in 2021. Yeah. I don't know. One of the bigger independents that I follow is uh, Pioneer Natural Resources, uh, PXD. Their dividend is $25 a year. (laughs) It's insane. You know, yeah, it's like a $250 stock, but I mean, it's got a 10% yield and they have five to 10% production growth locked in for probably over a decade. And they're one of the top, they're a pure Permian Basin company that's just got, you know, hundreds of thousands of very high quality acreage. You know, Dan, I've been studying uh, long commodity cycles and they said there's four parts to them. And in the first phase of the commodity bull market or bull market, it's, you know, the smart money sees it, gets on board and they accumulate. They buy it because it's cheap. They see the fundamentals and catalysts that are turning. In phase two, usually after three years of profits, the institutions get on board phase two. So they start bringing money in. Phase three is when the individual investor gets in. You know, you're talking about seven, eight years in the cycle. In phase four, the politicians finally do pass legislation to kind of correct the problem. Well, we're a long ways away from that. And, you know, I still think we're still in maybe the latter stages of stage one. If you take a look at where we've gone from 2020. Well, I can tell you, I've been doing this for a long time and I've never seen high quality companies trade at such low multiples of cash flow. Our Sweet 16, which is my top picks each year, is trading for an average of three times operating cash flow. And the largest company in there is COG Resource, like an $85 billion market cap company. It's the only one trading above six times cash flow. Heck, when I was at Hess, if we could find companies that we could buy for six times cash flow, we'd be buying them. So the next big step that's where the big gains are going to be made in these companies' stocks, I think, is when we get this multiple expansion where they say, hey, when the average investor, the generalists, are the fund managers that were you know, shying away from the energy sector say, you know what? These companies are making real money. They're really making money. And we have to, we can't ignore them anymore. We have to have them in our portfolios. And I think the larger ones that pay really nice dividends, they're going to be the first to that party. And that's the safest ones for the fund managers to pump into their funds. And I just think we're going to see some rotation out of tech. I think the tech's percentage of the overall market may come down about 10%, and that 10% might go into energy which is at kind of an almost an all-time low as far as the, its percentage of the market. Yeah. I mean, it was double digits leading up to the financial crisis. And you mentioned free cash flow, which is what we look at when we evaluate companies. You know, I'm just looking at Exxon, free cash flow to the firm, almost $60 billion. That's amazing. Yeah. Selling at seven times free cash flow. I mean, you just can't find this. Yeah, you can't believe it. I mean, they used to sell it like seven or eight times operating cash flow. That's not free cash flow. Free cash flow is operating cash flow, less capital expenditures. Yeah. Free cash flow is like if you hit every dime you spend, even if you're buying a house or something, you got money left over that you can spend on anything. Yeah. $60 billion. That's them. And buy and paying off their debt. Yeah, their working capital is just going through the roof. So, Dan, in conclusion here, you know, I'm extremely bullish on commodities and oil. What would you recommend investors do? I mean, if you have oil stocks, just sit on them, enjoy the dividends and the increases is what would be my advice. Well, first of all, become EPG members. Okay. And then you'll learn about some really good ideas because what we're really looking for is the companies that are off the radar screen that eventually their stock's going to go up or else they're going to be bought out by a larger company. 
They're just too attractive as takeover targets. But, you know, educate yourself on the industry, I think. And then, you know, just there's the larger ones are safer. A size does matter in this industry. I like a lot of the midstream companies. We're not building any more pipelines. So the companies with existing pipelines are very in high demand. Their pipelines are full. They're going to stay full and they're going to generate a lot of cash flow and a lot of dividends. So that's a good place to look. And speaking about investing, how can our listeners find out more about your newsletter, Dan? Well, they could just go to energyperspectus.com and we set up a promo code for your listeners. It's FSN100. If they go to our website, you scroll down a little bit and you can say join now and you click on that. And the regular fee is $350 per year to be a member but you'll get $100 off your first year. And if we can't give you one good idea that makes you that $250 back, we're doing something wrong. All right. Well, listen, Dan, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you and look forward to talking to you again next year where I believe we'll be seeing at some point in the year much higher oil prices. Yeah, something's got to change here pretty soon. And thanks a lot for letting me be on your show. You betcha. Take care, Dan. In the second hour, Jim Bianco from Bianco Research joins me for a special hour interview as we discuss the approaching recession. Will it be hard or a soft landing? Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company. Companies mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.